Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Good evening. We are in the books of Samuel, the last judge of Israel. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, open our hearts just now to your word, as well as to the example of the faithful of years past. Help us to not only understand our place in your kingdom, but to learn from their mistakes, that we may um, avoid the traps and heed the warnings in these lives. Help us to see ourselves in the pages of your word. In the most holy name of Christ we pray, amen. So we're concentrating on the first two books of Samuel, which did not used to be two separate books. They were originally one book. Um, They were split during the time of the Septuagint. And in that time, they were actually interconnected with 1st and 2nd Kings. So the old way of, of rendering that from the Septuagint translation would have been First Kingdoms, Second Kingdoms, Third Kingdoms, Fourth Kingdoms, instead of Samuel, Samuel, Kings and Kings. They were considered one series. And that explains a lot of the consistency in the, uh, in the typing and in the, uh, the outlining that you see from book to book. So just to recap where we left off, Israel, before these books, during the time of these books, was a theocratic confederation of 12 different tribal states. God was their king. To recap Ruth really quickly, Ruth is required reading before you understand the New Testament and Jesus' place in our lives. Ruth uh, is a prophetic insight and grants us a bit of, of insight on the relationship between Israel, the church, and Jesus himself. It's a story about God overcoming legalism with grace and how through grace the law of God is fulfilled. It's a foreshadowing, in other words, a hidden gem that reveals part of the New Testament and its truths. The role of the Goel is explained, which makes it required reading before you understand the book of Revelation. And it also gives us a buildup to the origins of the family that would become the house of David. So this is the basic timeline of the books that we're getting ready to delve into here. The, uh, the green line is not necessarily Samuel's time only as judge over Israel. It's actually from the time he begins his priestly ministry until his death right before Saul's death, almost immediately before Saul's death. Then you have where Saul picks up being anointed by Samuel, and that encapsulates the book of Samuel, of 1 Samuel. And of course, once Saul has been, once Saul commits suicide, uh, David is eventually crowned as king of Judah first, and then of Israel as a whole as the United Kingdom later on in around 1010 BC. All of these dates are conjecturable, admittedly, but this gives you a, a rough frame of reference of about 110 plus years that these two books offer a history of. 
So this is where we left off. These were the tribal allotments <clears throat> given before the book of the Judges. Each tribe, each of the 12 tribes having its own inheritance with the exception of Levi. Why? Because Levi, God was Levi's inheritance. So his descendants were given several cities scattered throughout the land of Israel. And the idea was that no matter where you were, godly instruction was just a couple of miles away. So, getting right into the material, the book of 1 Samuel, we're talking about the end of the judges and the rise of Israel as a kingdom, as a monarchy. So again, this book began as a single work. It was divided because of its size during the compilation of the Septuagint. First Chronicles... The books, again, the books of Samuel and Kings form a series together. The, book of the, the books of Chronicles, on the other hand, cover a lot of the same ground, but from the point, of Ju, uh, the point of view of the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 1 Chronicles 29-29, it describes the, the compilation of this first set of books, this first scroll, if you will, of 1 and 2 Samuel, to Samuel himself his successor Nathan, and another prophet named Gad. And the, uh, right now the scholarly understanding is that these books, these, this, these two books, First and Second Samuel, were finished around the time of Solomon's reign. They are a biography of sorts. You can also think of them as a history because there's a lot of personal details in here as well as accounts of historical events, but they're written through the lens of the Holy Spirit. They're written from the point of view of the religion of the people of Israel, from a sacred lens. So there are three sections to this first book. There's the end of the Judges, the twilight of the Judges, which talks about the story and the struggle of Hannah, Samuel's mother, the relationship, kind of the, the backwards reflection or the forwards reflection that Samuel actually is to Samson. There's Samuel's dedication in youth, his call for purification over Israel, his career as judge over Israel, and then his struggle as Israel demands a king for itself. There's his early career, or rather the early career of King Saul, where he serves as Saul's prophet from chapters 9 to 14. Uh, that's the election and anointing of Saul, his early devotion and successes, and Unfortunately, his descent into pride and arrogance, which would ultimately lead to his judgment and downfall. So the Song of Hannah, chapters 1 and 2. Hannah, who was Samuel's mother, was unable to conceive. Her husband, Elkanah, had another wife named Peneah, who was, according to the book, it was actually listed as the second wife. And she was tormented by Peneah, because she was unable to have children, unable to bear Elkanah a son. Now, you learn later on in the Bible that this is a priestly house. This is a Levitical family, but they happen to live in the state of Ephraim, which makes them an Ephraimite. Now, when, when you see that in the book, it's not talking about his family so much as it's talking about his citizenship. The way that even though I am living in West Virginia right now, by birth I am a Kentuckian, that kind of thing. So he does qualify for the priestly office. 
She went to Shiloh to present offerings to God with the rest of her family, and while there she cried out to God in prayer and dedication. And for her faithfulness, God grants her a son that she dedicates to God. Samuel's name has, has two potential meanings. The first one is his name is El, or in other words, his name is God, the Lord is God. And the second version, or the second potential meaning is, because again, this is a, an ancient contraction of words, that God has heard me, which I think is the more likely of the two, but that's from 1 Samuel 1.20. She dedicates him to God's service, and like Samson, she dedicates him as a lifelong Nazarite, but unlike Samson, he remains faithful. No razor shall touch his head, she says. And then she praises God in glory. She glorifies him through a poem, a song that she sings in chapter two. And the song that she sings actually sets up a thematic outline of both books. The God of Israel is God alone. He humbles the proud. He is merciful to the humble. He rewards the faithfulness of his people and he judges those who commit sin, those who are unfaithful. And God himself, in kind of a messianic foreshadowing of the future, God himself will provide a king that will be faithful to him. During this time, Israel was under the watch care of a priest by the name of Levi, who served God next to the tabernacle in the city of Shiloh. Um, his sons were guilty, Hophni and Phinehas, were guilty of both promiscuity and the Bible goes into them extorting food offerings from worshipers that were coming there to make sacrifices. And God uh, understands that they are blasphemers and are dealing him with contempt. Eli even confronts his sons, but he confronts them in such a way that they bear no consequences whatsoever. So they continue to have contempt for God in the midst of his own sanctuary. So Eli is then confronted by what your Bibles translate as a man of God, what we can interpret as a prophet of God, and his family was cursed from Eli on to die young, to die in the prime of life. Later on, as kind of a trophy, or as, as treating it like an idol presented to war, without consulting God first, the people of Israel, before the, uh, before the rise of Samuel as their judge, decide that they will take the Ark of the Covenant and parade it out before the Philistines, who are still being aggressors, who have basically turned Israel into a servant class. They will parade it out before them so that God will use his magic to bring them success. At least that's the Israelite thought. We will take this thing that represents God and we will parade it before us to give us encouragement and excitement and so forth. They do it all without prayer. They do it all from a business meeting and not a devotional meeting. Nothing to do with God. So when the uh, Ark of the Covenant is marched from Shiloh in the presence of the army of God with Hophni and Phinehas uh, caretaking for it, it is captured in battle and taken as spoils of war from the Philistines all the way from the area of Shiloh to Ashdod on the coast. Incidentally, where you see there on that map on the southwestern coast of Israel, that area, the area of the Philistines, that would in Latin come to be known as Palestine. 
So whenever you hear the word Palestine to be used of the land of Israel, that it's not its formal name. That is a bit of leftover Roman propaganda. The land is named Canaan. The people who possess the land are named Israel. The people who usurped the land, who were from Crete originally, at least we think so based on archaeological evidence, they are Philistines who were the reason that Palestine got its name. Remember that the next time that you hear somebody use that to declare Israel's land. It's a slander that has pervaded since the time of the Roman Empire. Anyway, Samuel was the last judge over Israel. Uh, This is a bit of his biography. He founds and leads the first edition of what we know as the School of the Prophets. This is the first time that we see prophets, once they're called by God, having a form of formal education, but not just education, but a means of care for one another, a means of accountability, and a means of uh, developing a sense of camaraderie and protection. He leads Israel against the Philistines. During this time, he, he calls Israel to rededicate themselves to the exclusivity of the worship of the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in his career, he both anoints King Saul and King David. The Philistines, just to give you a bit of background from them historically, are attributed by modern um, scholars as to being the same people as the sea peoples, the marauders of ancient Egypt. And their likely origin is Crete. They were Greek, in other words, from the area of the Aegean Sea. They settled in and around the southern Canaan coastal areas, and they are known to have oppressed Israel for no less than 40 years. In this case, we just heard that they captured the Ark of the Covenant, and during that time, God plagued them with at least two plagues. The first plague is that the cities that contained the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was basically played hot potato between all the Philistine cities, five of them at least. And during that time, two things happened. Number one, we're told in the Bible that uh, the people have a bad breakout of tumors. Some commentaries ascribe them to, to cancer, some more benign growths that are, are, shall we say, of an embarrassing origin, and I will just leave it there. But they also had a bad infestation of rats that brought disease and death. Also, when they first capture him and bring him to Ashdod, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the temple as a trophy before the altar and before the, the, the idol of their god Dagon. Now, after presenting Dagon the Ark of the Covenant, uh, they close the doors on the temple for the night. The next day they get open, and Dagon's statue is laying face first before the Ark of the Covenant. Apparently they didn't get the hint. They put Dagon back on his place, and then the next day, when they opened the temple, the body was still there, but Dagon's head and his hands had fallen off and were face down before the Ark of the Covenant. And it's at that point in time that they start to take the God of Israel seriously. So they move it to Ashdod, from Ashdod to another city, and then you get the, the breakout of tumors and the rats and the disease and the death, and then you pass it to another city and another city. Finally, after the fifth city, uh, the people of Palestine, uh, the Philistines, 
basically said, don't bring it here because death follows it. And they called a council of all the elders of, of Philistia together, I actually pronounced it correctly that time. They called all the, the allies of Philistia, the elders of Philistia together, and they asked what should be done about this. And some of them, it, it's amazing that the Philistines know more about the Ark of the Covenant and its story than Israel does. Because they say, this is the same God that wiped out the Egyptian army. Why are you bringing this here? Do you want to kill us? So they finally get within their heads that the God of Israel means business. In fact, in some of your translations, it says that God's hand was heavy upon them because of the Ark of the Covenant. So the priests of Philistia uh, come up with this idea. We'll put it on a cart. We'll put a couple of... of, um, oxen onto the cart. We will create a, a sin offering, a gold offering, uh, basically that will consist of five tumors and five rats made out of gold. And we will let it go, and wherever it goes, so be it, at least it's out of here. And it leads straight back into the Israeli territory. And it's at that point when they realize, when Israel starts to realize that God means business. And Samuel, Eli at this point is dead. After he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and that both his sons had died, he gets startled and he falls back into his chair and because of his girth and his age, his neck snaps and he dies. And so the only person of priestly eligibility that's left is Samuel. Samuel inherits effectively the title of judge over Israel and the priestly duties. So he calls Israel back to repentance. Get rid of the Baals, get rid of the Asherah poles. Get rid of all of it and go back to your covenantal relationship with God because God means business. God chast- Those who God loves, God what? Chastises. So if you're ever in a dark time, Remember, if you ever feel the weighty hand of God over you, it's not because God doesn't love you, it's the exact opposite. God wants you back into a right relationship with Him. That's one of the themes that we can glean from this book. Anyway, the Philistines were later defeated by Samuel. Later on, they would, of course, return, and they were the nemesis of King Saul upon his dying day, but, he was, but they were finally subdued by David. We'll talk about uh, the territory that Israel accumulates later on. Samuel became the judge and priest over Israel after the death of Eli and his sons. He fully embraced the faithfulness of the worship of God. He called Israel to repentance at Mitzpah right before that decisive battle. And he won military victories against the Philistines. And unfortunately, he would suffer the same eventual fate in a way that Eli did. We'll talk about that in a second. He judged Israel from, in a circuit, the Bible tells us, by traveling between Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and his home city, that's why it's got that asterisk there, his home city of Ramah, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept during his tenure. He appointed his sons as judges in Beersheba, so they were not on that circuit and they were not under his direct supervision. However, apparently, the authority of that office got to their heads, and they earned a reputation for corruption, and it's actually that reputation 
that caused the elders of Israel to demand a king and demand that the time of the judges ceases. This is also an example of self-determination versus being reliant upon the leading of God. The people of Israel, the elders of Israel, developed their own solution without consulting God in prayer. The rationale, and we're going to talk about that in just a second in chapter 8, verse 20, is that they want to be like the other nations, that they want a king, one of their own, to fight battles for them. Who have they ultimately rejected? Israel was called to be something apart from the other nations. They were supposed to be the city on the hill, the example of godliness. And now they're declaring before God and before his priest that they want to be just like everybody else. They want a man, a human being, to fight their battles for them. Who had fought the battles of Israel before Israel, before this point? God himself. And now here they are in this almost, this incredibly ungrateful uh, standoff saying that, no, we want one of our own. Thank you, God, but no, we want a king. From that unfortunate chapter we read, 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting with verse 7, the Lord told him, Samuel is doing what he should do. They have come to Samuel with that argument. And Samuel is trying to persuade them otherwise, not because he wants to keep the office, but because he's trying to warn them against this bit of disobedience. And, but he does what he's supposed to do. He takes the request to God in prayer, and this is the Lord's response. The Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. Because again, theocracy, rule of God. Verse 8, they are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. In other words, prophesy this. Any time that a king gets called they're going to have these deficits. It's a human being called to be under my authority and in my place at the same time. So they're going to subjugate you. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots or in horses or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. This is basically a recitation of all the evils that the kings would commit from this point on. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves and become his servants. But when the day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. 
Do they listen to the prophet when he speaks? The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they cried. We must have a king over us. And this is the rationale. We'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go before us, and fight our battles. They have forgotten who has given them the victory up to this point. Self-determination versus the leadership of God. So kingship in Israel was actually foredetermined by God, but in his own timing. It was actually forecast to Abraham in Genesis 17. It was prophesied by Israel himself in Genesis 35. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Law was actually established for the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. We'll actually talk about that a little bit more in the next session when we get into the books of the kings and the chronicles. Because there's, there's a stark difference. The king of Israel was supposed to have this difference. He was still subject under the law of God and therefore subject under God. He, unlike the rest of the nations around him, the king of Israel was not supposed to be a law unto himself. But he had his own authority checked and balanced against the law of the Torah. This is a continuation of the theme, whatever is right in their own eyes. And again, as we just read, Samuel gives them a direct warning of the things that would transpire all the way to the end of the Chronicles and the beginning of the Babylonian exile. Saul, I've glibly called a king after the heart of man. He's a Benjamite from Gilboa, or excuse me, from Gibeah. And if you remember our last session in the book of Judges, hearing the name of that town should perk your ears a little bit, because that was the city where the, the concubine of the Levite was murdered. But he establishes his own capital, his royal capital there, in the area of Benjamin. Now, he's described in the Bible as being physically imposing and also very charismatic, although not at first. At first, he is shy. He is, even though he stands about a head taller than everybody else around him, and it's said that he was very uh, handsome, very powerfully built, that he nevertheless didn't want the job, didn't want the responsibility, and initially ran away from it. But over the course of time, he becomes less reliant on God and impatient in God's timing, and grows more reliant on himself and his own wisdom. Self-assured, impatient, and unfortunately very unrepentant. That's the key difference between Saul and David. He had a very promising beginning. He trusts Saul as his, excuse me, Samuel as his advisor, the prophet of God, the person who has God's ear, so to speak. And he begins his reign very faithful to the law of God. In fact, very ironically, he starts out by condemning all of the, the mediums and all everyone who practices sorcery and witchcraft within the kingdom of Israel. Suffer not the life of a witch. And he took that very, very seriously. Personally, at this point in his life, he was modest, humble, direct, and very generous. But boy, how that changes over time. When he was preparing for battle at Gilgal, he was preparing to strike down the Philistines, but he was supposed to wait until Samuel arrived before performing a sacrifice 
of blessing over Israel. Now, this is important. Write this down in your notes. The office of prophets, priests, and king was never intended to all be held by one person. The priesthood was supposed to be separate, spiritual authority, from the king, temporal authority. They were never supposed to come together in one person until the coming of the Messiah. They were always supposed to be dependent and interrelated, but never housed in the same individual. And a prophet was assigned to make sure that both of them were in check. Samuel didn't show up in enough time to suit Saul's expectations. So Saul assumed the role of a priest himself and performed the sacrifice, violating that boundary, violating that, uh, that line which he should never have crossed. And because he violated the priestly office, he was judged to lose both his position and his family God is finding, he's searching out for your replacement right now. So in his declining years, Saul again gets characterized by being very proud and self-reliant. He acts out of a reverent presumption, in this case as a priest. Uh, He has a willful impatience. God's timing is not good enough. And he's disobedient in sparing the Amalekites that he was called to drive out. And there are actually some commentaries that uh, link the trouble that would happen during the book of Esther to a descendant from the Amalekites living in Babylon. He trusts in his own brilliance over God's will and ultimately falls because of it. He is judged and tormented. He becomes paranoid. One might also say insane. He persecutes his best general, which just happens to be David. And after Saul dies, excuse me, after Samuel dies, needing to have that voice of God, needing to, searching and longing to have that connectivity with the divine again, he asks his, his, um, his soldiers to go find a diviner, to go find a witch that he himself had ordered to be cast out of Israel, condemned. And they find one living at Endor. And he goes to her and has her perform a seance to bring Saul back. And something comes up, declaring itself to be Saul, and foretells, excuse me, something declaring itself to be Samuel, and foretells Saul By this time tomorrow, you will be with me. Which comes to pass. In Samuel chapter 31, Saul and Jonathan both die in battle. This is a picture of what the kingdom of Israel will ultimately look like before the kingdom splits into the north and south. Now if we zoom in a little bit on it, towards the center there around Jerusalem, the part that you see in gray is the part that is firmly held at this time during Saul's reign. I'll explain the rest of that shading in just a bit. 
David emerges as a king after God's own heart. And it's not necessarily because of... uh, Is he perfect? No. But unlike Saul, he was repentant. He owned up to his mistakes. He confessed his mistakes. He accepted punishment and he in fact offered himself as payment, trying to self-sacrifice to spare his son that will go stillborn and his people. David is from the tribe of Judah, from the city of Bethlehem, which if you'll remember in the book of Ruth was still a very religiously conservative city. It was still very much in fashion there to be under the the religion of the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was born into a faithful family. He was the least son of his father, Jesse. In fact, when Samuel searches him out to anoint as the next king of Israel, uh, Jesse presents all of his sons, these big strapping men that later go on to fight for Saul in the battle. And, And Saul asks him, don't you have any other boys? And Jesse effectively is like, yeah, but he's, he's the runt of the litter. He's out tending the flock right now. He was characterized by being lowly, humble, self-sacrificing, and faithful. Right also that he was filled with courage and zeal. He accepted God's judgment and was obedient and loyal even to his his king Saul, even during Saul's own persecution. There's this one scene where David is being persecuted, hunted down by Saul, and um, David is hiding in a cave. It's the same cave that Saul himself chooses to sleep in. And David goes into, he sees Saul laying there, and to try to to prove to Saul that he has no ill will for him, that he's still on Saul's side, that he's in fact still fighting for him, he rips off the hem of Saul's robe. That's very significant, as we talked about last time, because the hem of the garment is your identity. It is your authority. Here in this country, we either wear our authority on our sleeves or on our shoulders or on an ID card. Medieval Europe, it was on a ring, the signet. In Israel, it's in the pattern woven into the hem of a garment. And that's exactly what David had done. He ripped Saul's ID and his authority from him. But he presents it back to him. He even repents of that action. He is repentant when he's confronted by his own sin. And he's also acknowledged in in a really prophetic sense, in fact, Jesus in the New Testament refers to him as the prophet David. He, refer, he is the author and the compiler of many of the Psalms in the Old Testament, including Psalm 22, which if you'll remember our Holy Week service, we, uh, we kind of visited there. It's the same Psalm that Jesus himself quotes from the cross in a very prophetic way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his relationship with King Saul, David had evidenced faith and courage early in his life when as a boy, he confronted the Philistine champion, Goliath. We'll talk about him in just a second. 
He was anointed as the replacement of Saul during Saul's reign by the prophet Samuel. But even during all that time, he did not seek to overthrow Saul. In fact, when a Philistine uh, proselyte, for lack of a better word, a, a, an alien resident in Israel, um, identified himself as the person who finished off King Saul, what did, in bringing this, what he thought was good news to David, what did David do to him? David killed him for executing God's anointed. He defended Saul to the very end. He was a general of Saul's men of war. He was a very devoted friend to the crown prince of Israel at the time, Jonathan, the son of Saul, and married Michael as, as a reward, who was Saul's daughter. So Saul was effectively his, his father-in-law. He was, now let's talk about Goliath, because that's what everybody remembers when you talk about David. Goliath was a chosen champion of the Philistines. He was a professional soldier, meaning that from his very youth he was trained in the martial arts. He was apparently about five, uh, nine feet tall, and he is from a family of five. If you've ever wondered why uh, David, who only need one rock, uh, went down and grabbed five smooth stones, it's because I believe that he was afraid that he would also confront Goliath's brothers. He is supposedly descended from the Zemuim, which has been linked to the Anakim, and from the book of Genesis, the Nephilim, uh, the giants in the land. He challenges, after abusing God and God's people, he challenges a champion of Israel to single combat to determine the outcome of this battle. David is the only, this is a boy who was only there to deliver lunch to his brothers. Not big enough to put on a suit of armor. In fact, they tried to armor him, and it's so constrictive, he just takes it off and grabs his shepherd's sling. He picks up five smooth stones, stones, uses one, defeats Goliath, cuts off his head with his own sword, and is rewarded. As 1 Samuel closes with the death of King Saul, 2 Samuel opens up with the career and the reign of King David. Initially, David is only proclaimed king as the king of Judah. And during that time, a civil war breaks out between his forces and the 10 northern Israeli tribes under um, Ishbosheth, who was the last remaining son of Paul. Now, this is where you first see those divisions. Two supporting large tribes in the south, the other 10 in the north. So a civil war is under route. And this is the first time that we see what will be a continuing division. Ishbosheth is assassinated in home, in bed, I might add, while he was taking a, mid, a midday siesta. And he is only uh, declared the ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel for two years' time. After which, the remainder of the elders of Israel come down to proclaim David the king. Now David, after defeating the Jebusites in Jebus, moves the capital from Hebron up to Salem, which he rechristens the city of David. 
and, and Jebus is named Jerusalem after the name of the old capital back under Melchizedek's day. Salem meaning the peace of God. So Jerusalem means the new peace or new, new Salem. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, this is the promise that God makes to David. David actually asks his prophet Nathan to go to God in prayer and ask. He gets this idea. The Ark of the Covenant by this time is several centuries old. It's decaying faster, than, not the Ark of the Covenant, but the tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting. It's decaying, it's in, in, in a bad state of, of repair. And David gets this idea to build a temple for God, something that has never been done in the five plus centuries that the people of Israel have been out of, out of Egypt. So not wanting to be presumptuous, David goes to Nathan the prophet and asks Nathan to take this idea to God on his behalf. And this is God's reply, looking at verse 5. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt, a half a millennia ago, until today I've not dwelled in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling place. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, I have, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of, of angel armies says. I took you from the pasture, from, trend, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all of your enemies from before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed. Again, this is a prophecy that has yet to come to pass. Nevertheless, it is promised there. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Notice the phrasing is very much like the phrasing used in the book of Genesis. He is the one, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish a throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. This is one of those phrases from a prophet that has a right now and a future meaning. It has a right now meaning, but there is an echo in the future that it will also qualify. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So this is the Davidic covenant. Similar to the Abrahamic covenant, it is unconditional. David does nothing to maintain it. It will always remain in place. 
Even when David's descendants become unfaithful, God will correct them, God will chastise them, and God will call them back until one day when the kingdom has been abolished and is recrystallizing. Eventually, a new shepherd will come over Israel in David's family. And once the throne is given to him, it will never depart from him. But that is still coming. Blessings for obedience, correction for disobedience. This is also a divine confirmation of the rule of Israel that the rule is supposed to be held by David. And that David, unlike Saul, David is not a human invention, but David's kingdom and heirship is established in God's will. He's given the promise of a perpetual dynasty, which will ultimately culminate in the coming of Jesus and his reign during the second coming. He is also promised that he is the fountainhead of the ancestry of the Messiah. So David's triumphs, he had early strategic and tactical victories against the Philistines, who Saul could not defeat, against the Syrians. David was able to hold off the Syrians. No one in Israel's history past, I believe it is Solomon, was able to do that. The Amorites and the Moabites in the east, the Edomites and the Amalekites in the south. So basically, David was the first time that the boundaries and the borders of Israel was made sure. He organizes also the priesthood into 24 choruses. Mark that number, because this is the, the only other place that you see that number, 24, in reference is in reference to another kind of priesthood that we come back to during the book of Revelation. Only a small strip of land around Ashdod and Gaza will remain in the control of the Philistines. Fortunately, this reign was marked by a very human tendency to try to do things in your own wisdom and without consulting God's wisdom. David unfortunately commits adultery with Bathsheba and attempts a cover-up of his own sin. Uh, Bathsheba should also be mentioned, coincidentally, as the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was Absalom's advisor during a civil war against David. David, to try to cover up what he had done, orchestrates the murder of Uriah the Hittite, sent him forward in battle in the very front guard, the very vanguard, and then give a signal to pull your men back so that only Uriah is in the middle of the fighting, that surely he may die. He succumbs to temptation during a time of... Whenever things are going wonderfully or whenever things are going horribly, watch out because that's when the enemy tries to strike. He committed adultery with Bathsheba when he was doing well, when he was unfortunately in a time of self-indulgence. In the spring, the Bible tells us, when kings go off to war. But where was David during the springtime when this happened? He was in the palace, not where he should have been with his own men. He was letting others fight his battles for him without him. The general brought up under King Saul, having anything to do with the engagements with the defense of Israel. He was taking it easy living the life of luxury in the palace during a time of self-indulgence. He was reliant on his own rationalizations of the sin instead of his devotion to God, knowing that the accumulation of wives by the king was forbidden by law, Deuteronomy 17. He was, of course, confronted by the prophet Nathan, and during that confrontation, he confesses, he demonstrates remorse and repentance. Unfortunately, the child that was born out of that entanglement would die. He actually offers, if I remember correctly, to give his own life if the child would be spared. He receives forgiveness, but unfortunately the consequences still remain. Write or underline that down in your notes. 
even though his relationship with God had not ceased, the consequences of his actions would remain. And those consequences include that his family declined through incest, through fratricide, brother versus brother murder, through rebellion, the rebellion of Absalom, his thirdborn, which would end up causing another civil war, two civil wars during the time, the time of a single king. And that is unfortunately where we are left in the book of 2 Samuel. When we start 1 Kings, we will see the rise of Solomon, his golden age, in the same pattern reemerging that we saw in the books of the Judges. It is very unfortunate that human nature has such a catastrophic impact when the people of God rely on their own wisdom instead of the wisdom of God, whenever the people of God do things based on what is right in their own rationalizations and not seeking God in prayer, we end up looking just like everybody else. But when, as in the case with David, we humble ourselves, confess our sins, and go to God in repentance. God, the Bible tells us, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. That's the difference ultimately between these two kings. The king that people wanted was the tall, charismatic, strongly built supermodel of his day, so to speak, who unfortunately started doing things from his own wisdom dug his heels in and wouldn't come back to God in repentance. What secured David, and I believe what made David, again, this is Robin's theology, so I'll leave it for you to parcel out on your own. But what made David into a king after God's own heart was the fact that he was not afraid to confront his sin, to confess his sin, to accept God's judgment, and to repent in my opinion, that's what made all the difference. And to this day, that's the example left for us as Christians. For God is faithful. If we sin, God is faithful. If we confess our sins, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And all God's people said, Amen. And Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together where we can come so where we can open your word together and we can reap the benefits of your wisdom. Help us to truly do that, to learn well these lessons so that in our lives, Lord, our lives may become a sacrifice of praise to you in everything that we do. In the most holy name of Christ we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.